Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. Well, it's been an interesting week of sitting in the house again for both of us. Pretty much. <laughs> been a lot of work going on in the garden as well. In, oh, yeah. in Somerset, a lot of garden work going on. I did go for an exercise walk as well, so that was good. More about that later. Right, we'll start with the podcast news. Dun, 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 dun. Some sort of jingle at some point I'll do, but never mind. <laughs> We'll do a quick followers update on our social media channels. We're up to 226 on Twitter and 345 on Facebook. So big thank you to a, and welcome to all of our new followers. And also big thank you and hello to all of our regulars uh, that have been mm-hmm. following us uh, since the start. So thank you. Hope you're all keeping well. And our downloads have gone past 6,000 now. So we're in 6,107. So that's rather nice as well. Thanks, everyone, again. Yeah, a big massive thank you for that. That's uh, brilliant. We've both been busy cheating on each other's podcast on this podcast, haven't we, this week? We have. We have. Yes. Yeah. We've both been on Jack Perk's new podcast. Uh, check it out. Bearded Tit. On, it's on Podbean. So if you give it a search on uh, Apple Podcasts, you should better find it. And, yeah, it's quite interesting. It basically talks to photographers about various topics and some naturalistic topics as well. And he's, he's had Stephen Moss on as well, the guest on our last podcast. So, yeah. Yeah, so g- give it a listen. Um, so both Neil and I, Neil and I are uh, on up-and-coming episodes with our, our respective specialities. So, yeah, give it a listen. And definitely going to have to get Jack on. Hi, Jack, yeah, we will. at some point. Hello, Jack. Hello. Yeah, I've already, I already warned him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so what was your topic then? Uh, mine was, I bet you can't guess what mine was. Mm, uh, frogs and toads perhaps it was it was absolutely frogs and toads and we did actually discuss snakes and also um ethical wildlife photography as well oh nice i bet you can guess what mine was was it birds oh it got me no it isn't (laughs) how dare you (laughs) (laughs) well you know um i'm gonna go with pond creatures how ever did you guess i'm surprised he got me on really because he you know it's almost his, well he's more fish i suppose isn't it although, yeah, although fish, you do the little, little known things. fact he likes his um herps more doesn't he, he likes his frogs toads and lizards mm, and the fish but fish is his specialty right so follow up and feedback time i won't do a jingle this time <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with well I, I think i'll start with my bad influence spreading hazira fourth that's at fourth h hazira on twitter has set up a photographic aquarium and literally just before we recorded, posted some nice pictures of newts. So, uh, yeah, my bad influence is spreading. In fact, this might be a good time to mention we have plans in the works for a little special episode on lockdown nature photography, things you can do, little projects and stuff. So uh, keep your um, ear out on social media, or eye out, I suppose, eye out on social media for that. Yeah, that's okay. just going to be little mini projects you can do at home in your own house or garden. So. that was up and coming and it'll be a very special episode so we've had a message from from nick gates as well the wet weather we've had recently which because i know nick's kind of he's nearer to me um and it's not been wet here (laughs) um, i can honestly say we've had two days of rain um now so my uh, pond is drying out uh well we've had two days of rain yeah Yeah, pretty much last two days it's rained and he said it's they've had a huge influx of snails emerging around the reed bed he's been visiting recently. So it's great to find and compare a, a trinity of stripe patterns, all part of collective ruse to ensure some stay hidden from hungry thrushes. So thank you very much for sharing that with us, Nick. Um, some great pictures there as well, which we'll retweet and share on our, our Twitter page so you can check those out and have a look. Yeah, yeah I like the old banded snails. I, do, I get a few in my garden, actually. My daughter loves finding those, which is interesting. I never had banded snails in my garden at, um, in Romford. So, yeah. I've also got a rare non-native snail, but I'll cover that in another podcast, I think. Um, we've also had a message from Lydia, uh, who said some very nice things about our podcast. But she's got a podcast she's starting herself, podcast on the fens where she lives. So that seems to be good. We'll, uh, we'll give it a plug when it's launched. Um, yeah, just keep, also, keeps updated. And... She's also had some interesting sightings in her garden. She's lucky enough to have song thrushes visit, which is pretty good. Some more standard birds like great tits, goldfinch, starlings, wren. Uh, she's got jackdaws building nests on chimneys down the road. Uh, but the one I'm most jealous of is she's got house sparrows. But in them, there's a couple of tree sparrows, which is 
which that's quite special. I imagine apparently they were a lot more common before we started bird watching and stuff. Um, in fact, because last few times I've been to uh, Rutland w- without the bird feather, there hasn't been any tree sparrows by the feeders, and that's the first place I ever saw them. So they seem to be still disappearing, sadly. One of these many birds like turtle doves have been declining. She's mm-hmm. also got a couple of hedgehogs coming in as well. There's another thing that's declining, and I haven't got in my garden as well. I did have them when I moved in, but I haven't seen one for years. Uh, I've I've seen them kind of out and about when I've been not mm. recently, um, but last year when I was coming back from um, places in the evening, I've seen them out and about. But they can't get into our garden, unfortunately. Um, well, they could get into our garden, but they can't get into the gardens either side of us because of the fencing. So yeah. we don't get yeah. them, unfortunately. Yes, hedgehogs. Hedgehogs. That's one a podcast topic we should do. That's yeah. a good one. Probably, I'm pretty sure there's a few experts out there we can get on as well. So. I'm pretty sure there is. Yeah. <laughs> But what about our own sightings then? What have you been seeing, Neil? Well, I've not much changed for last time. I had a, I had a woodlouse spider. Ah, so beat you to it. Um, ah, yeah, so I, did I. I but but you wasn't in. But yours wasn't in a strange place as mine was. Go on then. Where's yours? In our recycling bag that we keep in the house. Mm-hmm. Mine was in a compost bag. Okay. <laughs> I was in. Oh, oh, was it under it? I think it might be under it. Sorry. Uh, it was. Uh, I was doing planting sunflower seeds with my daughter. With a load of old compost. Put it this way, when we found the spider, it turned into the compost tray, turned into a make a home for the woodlouse spider. And she got quite annoyed. She set up a lovely thing with some logs and some stones. She got quite annoyed as I moved them to get a better angle and photograph it. No, Daddy, stop moving it. You're breaking the house. Oh, I see. Ours was, we, we were emptying out the recycling bag that we have just for paper recycling in the house. And we were emptying it into our bin. And she's like, oh, there's a woodlouse spider in the bottom of our paper recycling bag <laughs> what was quite funny was uh, obviously i've raised my daughter you know spiders don't want to hurt us so i said to her actually this one willow we have to be a little bit careful it doesn't want to bite us but if it gets very scared it might bite us and she's looked at me laughed and went don't be silly daddy <laughs> like, no no this one actually can <laughs> oh, i've taught her too well uh, um, yeah you have <laughs> and what else have i seen I, like I said, I did a little exercise walk and I found out less than five minutes from my house I have linnet. And even more surprising, I've not seen swallows anywhere near my house. And there were swallows, admittedly it was about five, ten minute walk down the, down the road. Uh, but there's a load of stables and they were flying around the field there. So hopefully they nest there. So hopefully when the lockdown finishes, I might be able to have a word with someone there and uh, pop in and photograph some because that'd be nice. That'd be pretty cool. I've heard probably some other nice inverts and stuff I've seen, but I can't think off the top of my head. I've had a few. So I think I had an Amada bee flying around and bee flies and all the stuff. But we mentioned that last time. Loads of hoverflies. Oh, my uh, red mason bees have definitely woken up. Uh, I shared a, a quick phone video and it did quite well on social media. Unlike my actual photos, I spent ages photographing. One <laughs> I did a quick grab, obviously, really well. But uh, a social media for you. Well, anything else on top of your woodhouse spider you've seen? Um, I've actually had quite a quite an interesting week in my garden. Actually, it has to be said. So. Lots of bees, loads of ants, which actually leads us quite nicely into tonight's main topic or today's main topic. Butterflies. I actually have a starling that mimics a buzzard that sits in the in the hedge just to one side of the garden. And then two very interesting things have happened this week. And you know about one of them, Neil, because I told Mm. you about it. Um, And so just doing some work in the garden, we've basically decided to rip the decking out and make it more wildlife friendly. And in the process of doing all this, we've seen the garden quite a bit. And this bird just comes dive bombing into the garden, brushes past my leg, touching my leg, and then kind of flies over the fence, which is only about waist height, into next door neighbour's garden, where it just kind of lands on their decking, looking a little stunned and shocked. It was only once it actually stopped, we realised it was a sparrow hawk. Nice. Um, and after a couple of minutes, it kind of, you know, just took off and disappeared again. So that was definitely a close encounter of the wildlife kind. I've never had a sparrow hawk that close to me. I've certainly never had one touching me as it's come <laughs> flying through the garden. Um, and then also found out that we have a bee orchid growing in our garden, oh. which is amazing. So here's a little lesson. Don't cut your lawn. You'll never know what might grow in it. That is quite ex- so well, excellent isn't it that, that's quite exciting so waiting to see if that flowers so we shall see so yeah that, that's been my wildlife week in my garden well one thing i think i did just thinking about i um just remembered 
is the frogs have decided to show themselves in the daytime. So I think they've bred, gone off and refueled, and now they're now it's so dry. There, there's two frogs. I can tell there's two different ones. Well, partly because I've seen them both at the same time now. But they're one's very dark and one's very pale. The pale one's very skittish. But the other ones, you just rely on its camouflage and can sit quite still. And I've managed to get a few pictures of it. Um, I've got one looking like it's winking at me. I must post soon. Uh, and my pond is just a writhing mass of tadpoles with some water in it now. The whole, there's like a ring of them around the pond when the sun's on it, around the edge. Um, and I've started, because there's nothing in my pond apart from algae and a little bit of moss, um, I've started chucking in the old alf, algae wafer tablets I had from when I had a, <laughs> an algae and catfish many years ago. Well, a few years ago, I had a pot just, just kicking around. So yeah, my, them, so. my, my tadpoles have been doing pretty well. And I actually found four little frogs, so not big mm. enough to breed. Um, no. Probably last year's, actually. Um, but for all of about the same size, actually, so probably all from last year, four different ones, because, again, they're all slightly different colours, so it's quite easy to tell them apart around the pond. So I think they're quite happy. I've now finished the pond and finished edging it and sorting it out. So they're mm. quite happy. And I also have a newt in the pond. Oh, excellent. So, so what stage are your tadpoles up to? Uh, they're still pretty small, I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah, my, my, mine are the properly free swimming, but not quite that full size before they get to rear leg growing stage so they're sort of halfway between the just hatched and the yeah mine are probably leg. just a, just over a centimeter but definitely free swimming oh no my, mine are at least two not as a competition or anything but um yeah they get a lot of sun in the morning then it goes behind the house and then they get a lot of sun from sort of like two o'clock although the shade goes across it quite quickly mm. um and there's lots of shallow areas the way i redesigned my pond so they're just sitting in sort of two centimeters of water oh and also they're feeding the blackbirds quite nicely too I see. We've actually had a couple I of frosts. I'll bring that up because I know how much you like that. Mm. Um, oh, I, I had netted a... now, but oh, I we've had actually frost. we've actually had a couple of frosts. Mm. Um, had a frost. This week, our pond was partially frozen over, and the bird baths were both so frozen solid. So, um, I don't think that's really helped. Oh no, I don't think mine froze though. It's interesting. I'm probably not quite as high up as you, am I? So, I'm not yeah. quite as exposed either. Mm. I'm fairly yeah. exposed, but yeah. Yeah, it got pretty cold, so I think that's not really helped. There's nothing between me and the uh, Thames Estuary, really. So, but yeah, they seem to, it's slightly sheltered spot that pond, I think. Mm. So, right, we move on to the wildlife news, I think. Yeah, which which story are we going to start with? I'll let you start with the surprise visitor to the River Parrot, I think. So it was something that we, I think, possibly the last episode we we recorded, or might be the one before, but um, someone actually asked us about. Uh, you know, increased wildlife sightings, mm. yeah, unusual wildlife sightings in urban areas. And this actually popped up and I saw this um, this news article and then Alan James, friend of the show, has actually kind of asked about it as well at the same time. And earlier or last week, there were two porpoise, um, porpoise actually spotted in the River Parrot in Bridgewater and later in the River Tone in Borough Bridge. And they're both in Somerset. And... They actually uh, spoke to a marine biologist and he thinks they may have followed fish upstream and inland. Yeah. And to give you an idea, it's about 15 miles inland from the sea. Now, as far as we know, they've probably headed back out to sea. I don't think they've been, been spotted again since. Um, yeah. But apparently it's not the first time they've been, they've been spotted coming inland up the rivers. Mm. But it was, it was a chap that filmed it. He was just out. It was actually right by his house. So he's not actively gone out and seeking them. Um, and... Yeah, it's a lovely video of these two porpoise just swimming up the rivers in Somerset, which is amazing. That is not that surprising, but it probably would have been to see it. Do you know what I mean? It, it, mm. But it does happen. Uh, seals quite commonly go upstream. A friend of mine, for, oh, a couple of months ago, he lives, uh, he, he works at Kew Gardens, and there was a seal in the Thames there. And I can't think, it's probably still slightly tidal there. I can't think where it stops being tied on the Thames. I think it goes quite way up the Thames. But yeah, it's sea mammals do wander up. We had Benny the Beluga in the Thames, who I did manage to see. But of course, that's Thames Estuary, so it's basically marine there anyway. Uh, although it was unusual to have a beluga down that far south, but otherwise. Mm. And there, there's porpoises uh, seal off Raynham, which is inside the M25. And there was a bottlenose dolphin around for a while as well at one point. So it's not that unusual, but fairly unusual kind of that one of those not surprising as you think but still a nice surprise kind of deals yeah so that's pretty yeah. cool so what have you got for us neil i've got a few awesome. stories here 
One that nearly made me cry, which is good news, but it nearly made me cry. For those that know their pond creatures, are probably familiar with triops or tadpole shrimps, famous for being the living fossils. I hate that term. Um, I'll explain why another time. And these are basically temporary pond specialist shrimps. They go up to sort of two, three inches long. Uh, the body's about an inch long. They've got these long tails. Think a horseshoe crab with a, a ta- with, but rather than a one long spiky tail, they've got a sort of a normal tail with two little filamenty tails coming off it. They look like horseshoe crab underneath as well. Uh, not really shrimps, but one of these mini crustaceans. They have eggs that can live for 100 years, dried out until conditions are right. And they only appear in this pond in the new forest, the one and only pond, possibly a second one as well, but the one and only pond in the new forest is the only one in England they're founding once every two or three years, usually in autumn, usually end of August, September. They need it to be warm enough. So I think it's above 15, 20 degrees centigrade, something like that. And they also need the water to be fresh rain. So it's lovely clean water. So there's no predators in there to compete with. And they complete their life cycle in a few weeks, like two or three weeks, month max. And they came out in spring this year, the year there's a lockdown. So I can't go and see them. And they're Schedule 5, so I'd have to nag a friend of mine to take me. But it's like, oh, I want to see them. Because um, I haven't seen them for... I've only seen them twice, and that's both in the same year. God, when was that? 2015, 2016, something like that? Yeah, and they're just amazing creatures. But, yeah, we'll probably have to, we're going to have to do a podcast on their market. Talk to my friend Naomi about coming on again. Uh, she has agreed to. There's a silly story about a supposed large wildcat in Cambridgeshire, but it's clearly a domestic cat so i'm not going to go into it too much about that big cats is another one we need to talk about at some point but uh, yeah. again let's not go into that uh, ridiculous things of the week some idiot with a fire lantern business uh, tried to start a lighter fire lantern for the nhs and let it go which is a really great idea because what happens is you light something on fire you let it go into the air and it can come down anywhere possibly still on fire like a recycling plant or a dry meadow or a hay bale or a farmer's um, yeah the back of a cow yeah. or a horse and scar it horribly um, all of which will put more pressure on emergency services we're trying to help and when he got the probably the biggest pile down i've ever seen on twitter one side because you usually get one or two people sticking up for people there was like 1500 replies and i didn't see a single one supporting it the fire service the nhs were all going do not do this and then he put out <laughs> a supposed apology which was oh it looks like lots of people have objected to us doing this for the nhs so you can do it for the charity of your choice and it's like oh god get the hint man but this place he's got form he he tried to release do you remember some of you might remember in Germany, a fire lantern caused a fire. I was actually, I think I was actually over in Germany. You when were, this yeah. Happened. yeah. Um, you probably missed this then. He did a raise money for the German zoo by buying one of our much safer, eco-friendly fire. Mm. He's ones he has, not these cheap ones with mercury and you get from China. He, he thinks they need to be better regulated so you can only buy his ones. He has, they're bi- biodegradable, but that doesn't mean they dissolve instantly when they hit the ground and there's still a fire risk. So... Uh, yeah, and I mean, oh. for anyone that doesn't know, basically, a one of these fire lanterns. Um, Chinese, they call them came, Chinese fire lanterns, don't they? Yeah, so, they, it but, came yeah. down a zoo in Germany and devastated the zoo, killing a lot of animals um, because it came down in the middle of the night when there wasn't anyone there. Um, so that's, you know, to cut a long story short. Um, and there were stories of keepers running into it and they're, they're literally sort of firemen holding them back to stop them going back yeah. in really yeah. don't release fire lanterns of any oh. kind they're a really really bad idea and right now i mean you know we mentioned it earlier in the podcast we've had a couple of days of rain here in somerset but neil said you know you, you guys haven't had anything over there mm. the ground oh. is dry um so please 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 just listen to us listen to the nhs listen to the fire service the police do not release these for any reason please yeah, i mean um i forgot what i was going to say now but yeah that it's just a ridiculous idea but yeah. talking of ridiculous ideas natural england oh I've, i do have friends that work for natural england i'm going to start this story for saying there are some amazing people that work at natural england and dear god they must be fervently embarrassed i mean we've had pulling the hair out <laughs> yeah pulling the hair out that's one way of putting it uh, the hen harriet stupid brood meddling man but the the latest thing is they have granted a license to take wild peregrines from the nest for falconry to keep as pets so they can breed them and have a pure british stock of peregrines which you know just effort okay might not do any damage to the numbers of peregrines but 
there's a few potential issues here is one why there's plenty of captive peregrines for those who don't know falcons are worth an absolute fortune in the middle east i think it's six grand each i read a figure for for peregrines and in, until the 90s it was rife people were nicking the chicks and the eggs from nests and introduced dna testing you had to dna register your peregrine now i have to admit i'm not totally up on the ins and outs of this but from what i've read they have deregulated it somewhat so they think there's more of this going on now it's because the dna testing has been scaled back austerity again for you and this why why give these people a license to take wild birds when there's no conservation benefit that's the whole point you know and they're claiming it's not for profit oh it's so us falconers can have a purebred line. why do you want a purebred lion because in the amount of falconry birds that have escaped of various species i dare say there's a lot of non-british dna now this is speculation i'll be honest but just why yeah <laughs> why? It, it's, it's a crazy crazy idea uh, it really know, is do you want to introduce beavers well there's a whole lot of tick lists you've got to go through mm. to well, take stuff in the wild yeah go ahead oh do yeah. you want to photograph great christian newts well you've got to jump from yeah yeah i don't know about that i think yeah, just ridiculous you know i've got to get loads of things signed off if i want to photograph a schedule five species these people are allowed to take peregrines from the wild for what in my view is not a valid reason and no. I think a lot of people's reasons. I think the RSVB have objected to it, and a lot of people have. And yeah, but there we go. Yeah, another dumb move by Natural England. I hate to say it. Yeah, uh, it's, it, I don't think it's going to be one that's going to be well supported. Um, from you know the little bits that I've picked up on and what I've read, um, I don't think it's going to be a well supported one. Hopefully, it will disappear into one of those crazy ideas that never came to fruition. It's. I think it's more likely to uh, slip under the radar. They'll kind of keep it. But there we go, there we go. Heyo, shall we move on to something incredibly interesting and our yeah. main topic for the evening? Or Indeed, for, yeah. for the evening. This is because we actually record in the evening, for anyone that doesn't yes. know. Um, yeah. We don't well, see some people might speculate we start in the morning, the amount we go on. But um <laughs> <laughs> we, we we actually just talk for hours and hours. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the main topic of this episode is ants you might actually find it quite interesting there are over 39 species of ant in the uk seven of these are introduced and four are endemic and we're not don't worry we're not going to talk about all 39 species of ants we'd need a lot longer than our, our normal hour to do that so what we've decided to do is pick the three most common species that you would most likely find in your garden or in or in an urban environment so you know if you live in a town the ones that you would most likely find around you or if you've got a garden the ones you'd most likely find in your garden and these are off you go neil uh, the black garden ant lassius niger the well the red garden ant or the european fire ant i've seen written i don't like that name basically or the red ant something we tend to call them here in the uk which is now i might pronounce this slightly wrong miramaka rubra and there's a few species of miramaka and the last one is the meadow ant or yellow meadow ant which is lassius and i've forgotten the the species name flavus flavus that's the one that's just flavus now i'm going to do a quick footnote when we i mentioned it was these three species we're doing on twitter ben andrew probably in complete shock wondered why i wasn't covering wood ants which is one of my obsessions and that is because they're so good they need a whole episode to themselves as far as i'm concerned so we're gonna and we can't all get out to see them at the moment so because by Trust me, when we cover wood ants, you're, the first thing you'll want to do is go straight out and see them. It is, for sure. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we decided let's go for species, yeah. certainly at the moment, that you are most likely to find in your garden or around where you live. So you might see them out on your daily exercise or in your own garden. That way you don't have to go out looking for them. Just going to start with a couple of little notes, because, I mean, I think ants are a bit of a marmite species. I think people either love them or hate them. A lot of people them see do see them as pests. So... Just kind of put down a couple of things that might make you actually think twice about them. Um, and it's a kind of a general thing when it comes to ants. And ants can actually be really good for the garden. And generally speaking, are harmless. There are some exceptions. Um, mm. They actually help to aerate the soil because when they burrow into it, making their nests, um, obviously help turn the soil over. They recycle nutrients, return detritus to the earth. And it actually helps to improve soil fertility, allowing more oxygen and water 
to reach the roots of plants. And they also act as, as really good pest controllers in your garden as well, believe it or not. And when you see them in massive numbers, you're probably thinking, really? But they do. They do act as, as quite good pest controllers. And they're also vital in various mutualistic relationships of our blue butterfly species in particular. But we'll come on to that a little bit later. And with some species, they thought they might actually aid with seed dispersal and also help pollinate some flowers. So, you know, they're not all bad. And actually, I think when you get to know them and hopefully by the end of this podcast, you'll be with Neil and I on thinking that they're absolutely wonderful little creatures. So I think let's get going with the black garden ant. This is the one that we most often find in our gardens. It is certainly the most common ant in our gardens and urban environments. They're found in areas where the ground's generally open, dry and warmed by the sun. So you very rarely will find them in woodlands or damp areas or shady areas. They do like that kind of warm, warm area. And quite often they'll nest under paving slabs, rocks, bits of um, wood, anything that basically can be warmed by the sun. And the nests are actually really quite large. So they'd normally have a single queen and then anything up to about 10,000 workers. So you're talking about quite a big nest here. And these are actually the ants that you'll see out foraging. I mean, if you go, I've spent a lot of work, a lot of time in my garden working on it in this past week when, and I'll be back in the garden this week. And I've got ants everywhere, like literally i can't move for mm. ants in some parts of my garden they, my they are. and particularly around the pond at the moment as well so at least when my little froglets emerge they're going to have a good food source <laughs> but these ants are actually they're out foraging they scavenge and feed on small invertebrates and can actually be aggressive and attack other ants so you know if you've got half an hour or whatever maybe just sit in your garden and watch them and see what they do and they actually have a really interesting thing that you you can do this in your garden probably not yet we probably need to wait till a little bit later on in the, in kind of later spring and then into summer. But their other main food source is actually honeydew, which is like a sugary substance that's produced by aphids. And ants will actually tend or is known as, as farming aphids. And then they milk these aphids by basically they stroke the aphid with their antennae and it encourages the aphid to produce this little drop of sugary substance and they actually farm them and milk them for this and they'll look after them on the plants they'll protect them from predators and you can actually see this in your own garden so if you find an area where you've got you see a lot of ants on a on a stem of a plant have a look because if it's aphids there it's something that you can observe which is is quite fascinating i don't know if it's something you've seen neil oh yeah i have yeah it's uh, absolutely fascinating um, and these are actually the ants that we generally see when it comes to flying ant day. And I'm going to come on to that in a little bit more detail in a minute. But just before I do. Now, this isn't going to be true of everywhere in the country. And actually, it's only probably a very small area in the country that, that this would really apply to. But the black ant actually has a really interesting and intimate relationship with the silver studded blue butterfly. So the adult female butterfly can detect black ant nests and will lay her eggs close to a nest. When the caterpillar hatches from the egg, it's immediately attractive, attractive to the ants. And after its first skin molt, the caterpillar has developed secretory organs that produce a saccharine secretion, which is fortified with amino acids. And it's this substance that's really attractive to the ants. And they'll actually kind of take it into the nest and they'll look after it. And when these caterpillars go out foraging at dusk, they're actually accompanied by the ants as well. So they have that protection all the way through. And this will go right the way through until the, the butterfly eventually emerges from the chrysalis. And when the butterfly emerges from the chrysalis, and this happens underground in the ant's nest, for some butterflies, it's deep within the nest. And for others, it's in one of the kind of entry chambers. But the furry body is actually covered in droplets of liquid. And as it leaves the nest, it's accompanied by anywhere around four to eight ants which continue to tend to the butterfly, removing these droplets until the butterfly's inflated its wings and it's ready to take to the air. So, you know, these ants are actually really vitally important to some of our, our really kind of special and rapidly declining species of blue butterfly in particular as well. So if you're in an area that's got st silver studded blue butterflies, definitely something to keep an eye out. But what about flying ants? How do you feel about flying ants, Neil? Oh, they're great food for dragonflies. And, and swifts and, actually apparently, and black-headed gulls you always get yeah. a swarm of them by them don't you yeah fantastic food source actually so we actually when we when we put it out there that we were going to do an episode on ants had quite a few people come in actually and say you know ask about flying ant day they're actually 
isn't a thing as flying ant day. There isn't one day of the year where all of the ants are up from the, the ground and come out. There's actually a flying ant season. And this runs from about June to September. Um, and there will be a few peak days within that. Um, but that'll only be when the conditions are just right. And I'll come on to, on to like the conditions that are needed um, in just a second. But the, the ants that we see, the flying ants, they're very different to the black ants that we see in the garden, but it is the same species. So the flying ants are actually mature, fertile, winged male and female ants. And the females are much, much bigger than the males. So if you see them together, you'll be able to tell in the time, uh, in the size difference, which is the male and the female. And basically, as the colony matures, the queen will produce virgin queens and winged males. And it's these ants that we actually see erupt from the ground in huge, huge numbers en masse. And it's not, you'll normally get several nests all kind of erupting at the same time in, in an area. And the reason they do this is it allows them to all take to the wing at the same time, disperse further and increases their chance of, chances of mating between different colonies. So they're not in mating with ants from the same colony. And the large numbers, I mean, there is this whole safety in numbers and this is definitely true with ants. You know, the huge numbers that we see erupting, it does give protection from predators because there's just so many of them. And if you're actually lucky enough to see one of these erupts, I saw this for the first time properly actually witnessed this last year at, at my parents' house, actually. And I was just about to leave and all of a sudden the ground just erupted and about five nests in the garden just all came to life at, at one time. And if you look closely, you may actually find a male and a female joined together. And this is actually called their nuptial flight. And it's a once in a lifetime event where uh, for the winged adults and the females will actually mate with several males during that time. Once that, the nuptial flight is over, the queen actually loses her wings. And there's I've seen various reports of her actually chewing the wings off mm. and she will then head off in search of a suitable place to start her own colony. And the sperm the female actually uh, received during that mating will allow her to lay fertilized eggs for the rest of her life and that can be up to about 15 years in the wild so you know that's quite a long time and the males are only produced by by the colony during flying ant season and after mating generally speaking they die after a day or two if they haven't been gobbled up by birds or anything else that's on the hunt for a, for a meal um but why does it happen and, and why do we, we get them? Well, you know, why do they all erupt at the same time? What triggers it? And to put, put it quite simply, it's actually the weather. They're really good at detecting the weather and the weather conditions need to be just right for the winged adults to erupt from the nests. And this generally means warm and humid um, conditions with minimal wind. And most mass flying events happen on days following a period of, of warm and humid weather. So if you have like three or four days where it's been quite warm and humid, then there's a good chance that the next day there might be, you know, a flying ant day. And a really interesting study by the Royal Society of Biology found that the temperature needs to be above 13 degrees centigrade. Now, I don't consider that to be that warm. You know, warm to me is anything over about 20 degrees centigrade. <laughs> but I like the warm weather. Um, and wind speeds have to be less than 6.3 metres per second. But what they did find is on days with mean temperatures um, above 25 degrees, there were flying ants somewhere. So, you know, we are talking those mid to those low to mid 20s really are the best times to for the ants to start taking to the wing. And the, the swarms of flying ants we actually see are made up of about 90 percent black ants. There are, you know, our other species do actually have flying ant days as well. And, you know, you may see, I think. Certainly the yellow meadow ant also doesn't. I believe the red ant has yeah. these flying ant days as well. It's just not in, in the sheer numbers that we tend to see with the black garden ant. But then the black garden ant is a far more common species and there's a lot more of them. But sometimes these swarms, if the conditions are absolutely perfect for these, um, swarms in the south of England have actually appeared looking almost like rain on weather forecast maps, moving mm. kind of... I think one record had it moving south from South Hampshire to West Sussex. And it actually appeared like a, a cloud on a weather map. It was that big. So, you know, hopefully um, that's answered a few questions about flying ant day. And 
you know maybe made you think a little bit differently about those black ants that you see in the garden and you know if the conditions are just right this year and we get flying ant day just go out and have a look it they're completely harmless yes they do get everywhere um but put a hat on it's fine but they're not going to bite and it's a really fascinating thing to actually watch um and even for you know maybe not them either the moment they erupt or even if you have a look around about 10-15 minutes after i mean these eruptions they don't last very long you're probably talking about 15 minutes at most and then it's like nothing happened it's it's a really quick thing but you know may, maybe go out and try and have a look and see if you can find one this summer if you can yeah it's funny by something of a coincidence the first time i met Stephen moss he came down to see the southern migrant hawker dragonflies in a local site to me and we were stood there and me him his daughter and a few other dragonfly enthusiasts and as we we're watching this southern migrant hawker we're and one waiting for it to hover but of course right at our feet there's we're standing on a big concrete slab right at our feet a black ant nest decided to erupt and the submarine hawker was just whizzing through the cloud of ants as they came up obviously no chance for a photo but amazing to watch i mean these days i'll be able to film it on my camera my um on slow motion which would have been cool rather special to see and i did once like you say once the flying ants have happened for the next day or two you quite often find the queens without wings walking around on pavements and stuff and a few years ago, I scooped up two or three of them, I think it was, and put them in little little pots with some sugar. Um, and I got at least two of them to get to the point of laying eggs and one to the point of having larvae and a couple of workers. Um, and then they died off. Apparently, they are quite hard to keep compared to some species. Oh. Yeah, amazing creatures. They are absolutely fascinating. Mm. So yeah. what what have you got for us then, Neil? I'm going to go with the... The red ant, which I have mixed feelings about, as you'll find out shortly. The red ant, also known as Mimirica rubra, which is the common species. There are a few species, um, some one of which is famous for being the host to the large blue butterfly, but I'll mention that a bit later. So these ants are about three to five millimetres long. They're sort of reddish brown in colour. The, the males, when they emerge, if you saw the video of... Use your, your video, Victoria, of the ants emerging and flying, which we put up a few days ago. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what this, this species was, because the males are pretty much black with a little bit of red on them, and the queens are, are mostly red, but again with black patches on. So they look a bit like sort of red-coloured black ants, but the ones you find tend to be the workers. So they're widespread, found in many habitats. They're the species of this genus that's most found in towns. That's why we're covering them. Now, they're a bit different to the black ants, which have you know, fairly large nests. These only have hundreds of workers, right? Actually, you know, average of a thousand, but they vary between a few tens up to eight thousand found in one nest. It's quite interesting the ratio. So, where's the? I believe the black ant nests tend to have one queen, or very few. The red ants tend to have one queen per sort of ten individual workers. So they have multiple queens. They're polygynous, and it's a bit flexible how the nest works. So you, they can. So when you find a colony, it might actually be lots of nests connected together. And you can end up with sort of super colonies in some species of ants, which uh, in a slight digression, there's a species, I forget what it is, there's a non-native one in the Mediterranean. And there's one super colony that stretches for sort of hundreds of miles on the coastline. When you think of colonial insects, I tend to think of sort of how honeybees, that's what we're taught at school, but ants can be very flexible on this. There's something interesting going on with the queens as well, with this species. Uh, you have the standard queens so queens tend to be bigger than the workers it's got to produce all these eggs and hold the sperm and stuff like that and they're called macro giants but they also have micro giants which are almost worker-sized queens they're omnivorous this species they'll take seeds small inverts aphid spiders worms stuff like that but they'll also take honeydew from the aphids as well so they farm them too it's very similar with the swarms with the black ants uh, they all they'll come out quite often at the same time as the black ants which is quite interesting, but they obviously can tell each other apart. I wonder if there ever is any mix-up there. Mm. <laughs> um, another way to reproduce as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to uh, just go keep keeping an eye on those forms now and, and the matings to see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and the one way they they work is they sort of bud off sometimes. So the queen will take a, a few workers off and form a new colony. Quite often, when the queens have mated, they'll go back into an existing colony and integrate into that and now, the thing they're famous for is quite a lot of people, and I don't know about you, Victoria, when I was raised, I was told the yellow ants, the orange ants, the yellowy orange ants, which is the yellow meadow ant, were the ones that sting, but it's not, it's these guys. I, I was always told the red ants. We always yeah. had black and red ants. 
Yeah, um, and but they, it was, they, they were, were yellow. Red ants. Or, yeah, because the ones that I always found were yellow, and I was told they were the red ants because they're sort of orangey yellow. Mm. Uh, but they're quite clearly. And these look a different shape to the black ants. They look almost like they've got too many segments in their forex between the head and the to, to my eyes anyway. They've got a sort of a weirder shaped forex, and they don't bite. I was always everyone's always oh these ants bite. Well now wood ants can bite, but to me they're not painful. Um, but I'm probably used to it by now. They sting which sort of betrays their um, the fact that ants are actually within the family of wasps. Well, family, not wasp family, that's totally the wrong word. Within the uh, group that includes wasps and bees, uh, the hymenoptera and sawflies, they probably, I couldn't find out anything in the short time I researched it, but they probably evolved the ability to sting independently, but that's, uh, and the colonialism, they evolved independently too, which is quite interesting. Uh, that hymenoptera is a whole topic in itself. Now, what's one thing that's interesting is these colonies will only be active from this month onwards. So they've hibernated most of the winter. In fact, they hibernate by they start hibernating by late September. So they're only active sort of spring, summer. The workers, like I say, can sting and they're quite aggressive if you um, make the mistake of attack accidentally in verticals attacking the nest, which is what I did once by putting my camera bag on the nest noticed there's a few of these red ants off, brushed them off, thought, oh, that was close. Glad I spotted those. I didn't realise there was still a few on there. But a minute later, I'm walking along and I'm getting shooting pains all down my arm and shoulder where they've all stung me at the same time. Now, I did some research and I couldn't find anything specifically on British Mimrica species. But the fire ant, which is in the same family, that's the infamous one that's invaded everywhere, will release an alarm pheromone. So they all sting at once, which you imagine is... Uh, rather effective yeah it hurts a lot um i've actually been on the receiving end of fire ants actually in in the caribbean i was on the receiving end of fire ants and they got me on both both feet both ankles and needed to spent the next day i was actually working out there and i spent the next day with my feet in the swimming pool and everything was done from me sitting on the edge of the swimming pool with my (laughs) feet in the swimming pool because it was cold so i can actually from experience say that yes fire ant stings are horrific and they do they all basically sting at the same time they do release this pheromone that you know gets them to sting at the same time and it's it's painful i'm gonna lie something that i found satisfying and you will probably find more satisfying have you heard about um ant decapitating flies you familiar with those now these are a group of flies they're famous for doing it to fire ants but there is a species that does it to miracle marubra now most of these ant decapitating flies home in on the smell of formic acid from the because a lot of ants uh, produce formic acid wood ants are a classic one but they they worked out as the attacking pheromones they used in Murica because obviously they produce this um, acid they have a sting and they set this pheromone the female flies down and lays an egg in the ant and flies away and that egg hatches inside think alien again it happens a lot in um, insects it does. hatches it you know, feeds around in the body and makes its way to the head where it feeds on bodily fluids and it starts to manipulate the ant's behaviour. A bit of mind control going on. Uh, body snatchers coming in there. And um, tries to make it stay in the nest. Now, the ants watch out for this and if they detect an ant behaviour strangely, they take it out of the nest. But it tries to stay in the safety of the nest for a while and then just before the fly needs to pupate, it makes the ant go out to find some damp leaf litter so it's nice and humid to pupate in. But then it starts eating away at its brains and stuff, hollows out the ant's head then produce a chemical that loosens the tissues between the head and the thorax and the ant's head falls off, which it then seals up the hole, bites a hole in the mouth ready to emerge from and pupates inside the hollowed out head of an ant, (laughs) which is rather excellent if you ask me. So there's a price being a successful animal is that lots of things will take advantage. There's a few nest parasites. There's the microdon hoverflies. There's a few parasitic wasps. And of course, the famous caterpillars of blue butterflies now miracle rubra in the uk isn't a host not successfully anyway i don't believe uh, to any of the blue butterflies here and there's a couple of large blue butterflies in europe that it is host to but related species are host to the large blue butterfly and i've done a little bit of research i think we'll cover that in a topic in itself i think the blue butterflies is a podcast in itself and it's quite interesting to read because they have such small nests 85 percent of these uh, miracle species nests are too small to support one caterpillar and even those that are big enough and only take one so if two caterpillars get in a nest they can wipe out the ants and even the ones that where they can support it they'll probably devastate the nest to a point that it won't survive we've got one more species to cover and i think i'll let you have the honor of that one 
Oh, it's too kind. It is the yellow meadow ant, Latius flavus, which, again, like Neil said, is quite often, this is one, you know, you might find in the garden, you mistake it for a red ant. You know, they're, they're actually, I think I've only ever seen them out when I've been doing surveys for chalkkill blue butterflies. And there's a reason for that, which I'm going to allude to a little bit later on. Um, but, you know, the ones that I've seen, they're very def, they're very definite kind of yellow, yellowy, orangey, you know, this is not something for me, whenever I've seen red ants in the garden, they've been obviously red ants. You know, they've not, there's been no kind of yellowiness in them at all. So, but then it probably varies from, you know, around the country. And these are, again, I think, you know, most, most of the ants we get in our gardens are very similar sizes. So these are about two to four and a half millimeters in length. Um, and, Again, I think a little bit probably more like um, the red ant. Colonies are much larger like the black ant, but they can have one or a few queens, whereas black ant colonies generally just have one queen. Um, so, it, you know, so it can a little bit of both there. But these ants you're not likely to see. Um, and the simple reason for that is that they live almost entirely underground, tending to avoid sunlight. The main sign that you'll see if you've got um, yellow meadow ants in your garden are mounds on the surface. They look a little bit like a molehill, um, but covered in in plants, basically. And you know, they, they don't come above the ground. There's I mean, there's been a few reports of them coming above the ground um, at dusk in relation to chalkhill blue butterflies again. Um, but they, you know, as with quite a lot of the other ant species, they also um, feed on the honeydew produced from aphids. And they actually, again, farm and milk the um, the aphids to produce a drop, a drop of, of honeydew. But they will also re, um, feed on the roots of plants growing in or around the mound or nest, uh, seeds, other small invertebrates. Um, so kind of similar foraging and food patterns to the other ants that we'd find in our gardens. They're more commonly found on meadows, um, roadside verges. Well, I've never seen one on a roadside verge, but I'll take your word for it, Neil. Um, yep. we, we kind of did, we, we both mm -hmm. did the research on this, so we kind of researched different areas. And sometimes you can find them in lawns, but this will only be if the lawn is left unmown for long periods of time. If, it, if, you, if you're constantly mowing your lawn, you're not going to find yellow meadow ant nests. They do also swarm like our other other ants, but it tends to be kind of late afternoon, July to September time, mainly in August. So they have a much shorter kind of flying ant season than um, so our more common black ants. And then they'll actually go off and start new colonies with, you know, one or more queens, whereas with the black ants, it's just the one. But as we mentioned with the other ants, with both the black ant and the red ant, there is the distinctive relationship with blue butterflies and as Neil said we will cover this I think probably in more detail because it is fascinating but the yellow meadow ant has a very distinct relationship with in particular the chalk hill blue butterfly and it's a butterfly that I actually know very well it's one that I've surveyed in this area well specifically this area but um, we do get uh, colonies of them here probably one of my favorite butterflies if I'm honest um, and the caterpillar actually secretes a 15% solution of sugars. And this is mainly sucrose. And it has more than 14 different amino acids. And it's again, it's these amino acids that make it attractive to the ants. The ants actually will take the caterpillar in, into the nest, providing protection from predators. And when the caterpillar emerges at dusk, again, it's normally accompanied by the ants. So there's a lot of like crossover and very similar behaviors between you know our ants and our butterflies but it shows just how important you know these ants are to some of the butterflies and these amazing relationships that they actually have and you know, with like the different caterpillar species produce um secretions with different numbers of amino acids in i mean chalk hill blue has 14 different ones i think you know a lot of the other blue butterflies it tends to be about six or less so it's a lot less from that but again another really fascinating little ant species yeah with them living underground most of the time i'm trying to think i suppose you find them under stones more but you, you see where's the other two you might find wandering around i've I found red ants on nettles and uh, black ants they come in your house sometimes even don't they whereas a meadow ant, i'm trying to think 
other than mowing a lawn that had hills in and obviously <laughs> in petrol mower plus anthill doesn't really mix very well i'm trying to think if i've ever seen one you know sort of just wandering around we, they just don't do it do they they live in them you know they're subterranean almost probably is the word isn't it i think they do come to surface rarely but um yeah, see, I mean, you're more likely to see them if you go out, you know, in certainly with chalk blue butterflies. I mean, they don't start emerging as adults until about July. So maybe June time, if you're out and about, then if yes, you... Yes, the butterflies lure them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, the cats, when the caterpillars come out to forage, the ants will come out with them. That's probably your best chance of seeing a yellow meadow ant, to be honest. Yeah, I'll dig up a mound. Not that I um, recommend that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> for scientific reasons. So there we go. There's our, our three probably most common species, or certainly yeah. the three species you're most likely to find in your garden, yeah. generally speaking. Some the three are the most common as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. And we, we did have um we did have like a last minute kind of couple of questions come in from Fiona Marshall on Twitter. And I'm hoping we've kind of covered most of your questions, Fiona, because there's quite yeah. a few in there. But she actually asked, how much does an ant weigh? So sounds like a joke. Yeah, it it does sound like a joke. Well, they're heavy if they're giants. Well, I'm just annoyed. I mean, I'm, I'm annoyed there's no real learning behaviour because then I could have gone, what is this? A school for ants? <laughs> but I could not squeeze it in anywhere. So um, I've just really shoehorned it in there. Definitely. Yeah, you have. Um, anyway, moving swiftly on. <laughs> yeah. So basically, if we, I mean, there are hundreds of species of ants across the world some of them are absolutely huge and some of them are teeny tiny so um, in answer to your question Fiona I'm just going to answer it in terms of the ants that we've covered and they're generally species between one to two um, micrograms from what I can find out um, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot on the weight of ants size no. you know they're I mean pretty much all of them are between about you know two to five millimeters so they're all roughly around about the same size but yeah, between about one to two milligrams, generally speaking, that seems to be the figure that, that comes up. As she asked about flying ant day, hopefully that's kind of covered it. There's no such thing as flying ant day. There is a hashtag that trends on Twitter called flying ant day. And then I think people get a little bit antsy. Oh, dear. When they see, you know, there's about four or five of them that pop up in the space of a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, you see people go, oh, there's only supposed to be one flying ant day. Um, there isn't. There's going to be peaks all the way through flying ant period. And the other one, that she, the other thing that she actually asked, she's got colonies in her front and back garden. Would these be separate colonies or would they be one colony? Now, I guess it depends on mm. how far away your front and back garden are. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if it's black ants, I'm going to say it's probably separate colonies because I don't think. it's It varies with... Even, we'll, we'll find out more and more there's a brilliant David Attenborough isn't there on the wood ants where mm. the whole basically a whole mountain side works together as one huge super colony where it's the same species on the next mountain over are at each other's throats and you get a I mean I don't want to pretend to be an expert on it but my understanding of a lot of these species is you'll sometimes get two colonies that are basically at war all the time mm. and another two colonies will tolerate each other and no, not cooperate, but they won't fly. And then others that start cooperating and some that are basically a super colony. So, yeah, they're, they're probably, like you say, they're probably likely separate, but can't rule out some sort of, especially if they're related, them working together. I think it, uh, think it does depend on the setup as well. I mean, we have, I know that I've got black ant colonies on my front, in my front garden, mm. and I've got black ant colonies in my back garden, but I'm pretty sure they're actually separate colonies. The distance apart that they are, and also, you know, with the house and, and where they are, and it's, it's you know, front and back gardens are actually very different as well. I would say they're probably different colonies, but it just depends, I think, as well, that distance between them. I mean, you know, when you see some of the flying, the, when the when you see the uh, nests erupt, um, erupt with the flying ants, mm. you, quite often you'll see like four or five in close proximity all erupting at the same time. Now, they could be one super colony with like separate little offshoots or it could be four or five separate colonies. It's without actually, I think, digging down and investigating, there's no way of, of really knowing. But again, and that, I think that really kind of answers our other question, which is how big is an ant colony? Yeah. And, you know, without, I know 
studies have been done in South America. I think it's more with termites, actually. They've done it where they've actually poured the latex into termites. Uh, they do it with ants as well. Yeah. No, um, sometimes it's alum, liquid aluminium and steel and stuff, isn't it? They pour it down the nest. It vaporises the ants, but then they mm. dig out the these desert ants that go down sort of four or five metres. Huge yeah. Uh, yeah, so how, how big are that underground nest? It's, it's kind of no real way of knowing unless you want to go out and dig it up and find out, yeah. which I do not suggest. Um, yeah. I mean, one way of telling, I know of wood ants they've done to see, because wood ants are, are not, notorious, is that the right word? They're well known for having satellite colonies. So you'll have a main nest, but then you'll have a smaller nest sort of 100 metres away, but the ants will work between them they're the same again they've got multiple queens it all gets very confusing but what you can do is take a worker from one and drop it near the other one and if they attack it you know it's from a different colony uh, again i recommend doing this with science something i've always wanted to do there's a couple of local wood ant woods and i always wanted to map out where the colonies were but again that's something uh, i think someone did do it once but it's fast it'd be fascinating to work out what trees are in what colony and, and it's quite a simple thing to do you know you just take one ant from that nest and take it over to there and see if they cooperate or fight and yeah. I think with, with the wood ants it's a little bit easier as well because the mm. nests are so much more visible oh yeah and they're big so you can watch the behavior easier yeah. and stuff like that and, and and when they fight boy do you know it I yeah. once witnessed wood ants having a fight but that's for the wood ant episode I don't yes um have you um do you know there's something I didn't get much squeeze in did you see that about the water test for um telling the gender of an ant I didn't you, find that one, no. No, no, yeah, basically, if um, you put the ant in the water, and if it's a girl ant, it sinks. Um, and if it floats, it's a boy ant. Okay. <laughs> I feel like this is a joke. <laughs> Did you not get that? If, it's a, if it floats, oh, yeah. it's a boy ant. Yeah, sorry, it's hoppers ten. Yeah, I see. When my colleague who worked with me for nearly 10 years, he could tell, even when I managed to subtly put it in the conversation, he could tell it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was, For me, that was quite subtle. Normally it's kind of, oh, here's a completely irrelevant comment. But <laughs> yeah. Did you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we could have done an Ant and Deck joke somewhere as well, but I refuse to you know, give too much oxygen to them. They're far too popular. Don't dislike them. They just seem to be everywhere all the time on terrible shows that i hate but nothing personal against them (laughs) i used to like biker grove and then i haven't liked a single program they've been in since but there we go i think that might be it from us now then unless you've i think we actually for once we actually covered everything at the start and didn't leave anything out i'm really hoping we haven't now i've said that i think we pretty much covered everything time to call time then yeah i mean well hopefully we've been able to open your eyes to see ants in a, in a different way and you know maybe if you're out in your garden it's supposed to be uh, I think it's supposed to be a lovely week across the board in the UK um, this week so maybe go out and just grab a cup of tea and go and sit and watch the ants for 10 minutes and yep. you know see see what you can see and you know some really interesting behaviours when you sit and watch them um, and hopefully I so said we've helped you know maybe if you, if you have not been a big big ant lover um, maybe we've helped change your mind a little bit about them. Yeah, and if, you, if we haven't convinced you, wait till we do the Widow episode. Yeah. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, so UK Wildlife Podcast on Facebook, UK Wildlife Pod on Twitter, UK underscore wildlife for me and. Vixpix, V I K S P I C S, for me. Yeah. And you know, also, if you, if you want to kind of check out a few little invertebrate facts, I've been starting to post a little bit more on my forgotten little creatures page as well if you just type in four little creature uh, creatures mm. that will pop up because i've been posting some of the ant stuff on there because ants didn't appear in the first book shocking i know but you haven't got are... messages of wood ants like me around here so no but given given the next book is going to cover the whole of the uk mm. that means wood ants are going to have to go in there oh, definitely they're awesome so yeah yep buy a book uh, yeah, so get interacting with the show, guys. So talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. So what you've been seeing, any wildlife or wildlife photography questions. If you've been doing any interesting projects that you don't mind us stealing for the, our special show, do get in touch. We'll give you credit. And yeah, yeah let's hey, you know. Oh, God, I've turned into the thing I hate the most. We'll pay you in credit. And <laughs> ah. Yeah, just, just get in touch. Let us know. And 
you know if you've got there. some interesting pictures or anything or you need anything um you've got any questions anything you want us to try and um identify you know share it and we'll we'll try our best i mean we're, we're both pretty much working from home now well i work from home anyway um, there's no real change there um but yeah, you know recordings you've made as well later and in nature recordings preferably <laughs> not for local <laughs> steam engine or whatever it is um yeah yeah we're going to have some interesting ones coming up including yeah, my starling and i've got my starling which is a herring gull followed by green woodpecker followed by a few other things so that should yeah. be quite interesting whereas Compared... mine is just a, a buzzard um mm, it is actually a starling mimicking a buzzard right i guess we'll say goodbye thanks for listening and stay safe yeah take care and you know get going on those gardens and see what you can find Bye for now. Bye.